Hello and welcome to the Ray Show Podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Ray, and we are recording now in beautiful downtown Athens, Georgia, on a lovely spring day here in early May. Today on the show, we have Jarbo. Um, You will know Jarbo from her prolific and amazing solo career, her work in Swans, and uh, also many collaborative projects, such as her, her work with Neurosis, um, Yesu and, and countless others. So it is an honor to be speaking to Jarbo, uh, and she has been always an artistic giant in my life. And uh, just, just so many records I could name, just, just to work on Illusory, uh, if you want to name something recent that, that really speaks to me. Um, I, I, I urge you to go down the rabbit hole of her, all of her vast catalog. Um, and we'll be getting to that chat here in just a little bit. Um, but yes, just want to catch everybody up. We are now back and going to be rolling episodes at you weekly. Uh, I'll be out in Los Angeles next week at the Cruel World Festival. So I hope to see uh, some of you out there. Come up and say hello if you see me walking around. Um, we also will be announcing the live podcast tapings. Um that we will be doing uh, with a collaboration with Cine here in Athens, Georgia. Uh, this will be live streamed out and all over our socials and everything like that. So you'll be able to participate if you're not here in Athens proper. Um, but that will be coming up soon. Um, you will see some uh, GoFundMe stuff on the uh, socials. So uh, we're, we are in need of some equipment so if you can give, um, please do. If you can't, I totally understand, and I still love you to pieces. Um, but without further ado, let's get to our talk with Jarbo. Everybody, we have Jarbo on the podcast today. How are you doing, Jarbo? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, uh, I'm fine. I'm always uh, active and busy and uh, overscheduled and uh, taking on too many projects. All, all that's that's me. <laughs> right, right. Well, we're all the better for that. So, um, but you know, I I, I want to start out you know, towards the beginning of your professional career. And, and, you know, I've always wanted to ask you this. What is the first thing you remember when you got to New York to join Swans? What's your first memory of that time? Oh, the very first memory would be the fact that uh, no taxi cab would even take you to Avenue A. So, uh, and that I was going into, um, you know, one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the entire United States. Uh, so I uh, had a friend accompany me. Um, it was someone going to school up there who had been going to Georgia Tech. And so uh, he was up there getting further education after his degree from tech. And so he accompanied me to, uh, uh, you know, Alphabet City, East Village. And so we had to stop at a, uh, uh, oh, yeah, and he told me to wear a big bulky coat. So we're both wearing these big bulky coats, and it was March, and wasn't that cold but that was to disguise yourself to look scary. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, so it was interesting. It was kind of like a spy movie. We had to stop at a phone booth, 
remember those? Oh God! On yes. the street, <laughs> such an archaic. <laughs> on the street thing. corner, on the street corner, and uh, it was Avenue A, and uh, I think it was Seventh Street. We had to stop in the street corner, and we had to make a phone call to where uh, Harry Crosby and Michael Girard were living, an apartment building, and then uh, walk over there and uh, uh, meet them. And then um, we were uh, invited to, or I was invited to a, a rehearsal. So the rehearsal was uh, where I wound up living, 6 and B. And so the uh, I wasn't allowed into the actual room where they, they were rehearsing. I had to sit outside. And this was free, this is raw space. This was absolutely unadorned raw warehouse space. And, you know, it had no amenities. It had no, no bathing facilities. It had no kitchen. It had, <laughs> right. it had no heat. It had no air conditioning. It was just a raw cement warehouse space. So that I sat in there and this music was so loud coming from the, the rehearsal room. The whole area was shaking and it was really exciting. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, so, so that was the first memory for me would simply be the fact that I didn't even know that neighborhood existed. I'd been to New York many times and that it was so dangerous. The taxi cab wouldn't even take you to Avenue oh. A and that you were taking your life in your hands heading in that direction. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that would be my first, my very first memory was this, this, this hidden, terrifying neighborhood. Well, you and Michael lived in what, would, what, what became known as the bunker. On, that yes, on that's the space I'm talking about. That Avenue, was the rehearsal space. That was the re- yes. And um, uh, it, this this was basically, I think, when it was originally designed, this building, this must have been a storage area because it was basically just a cement. Um, you know, it had no windows. It had nothing, and so um, there was a little tiny. Someone cut a little tiny uh, up near the, you know, the top part of the wall had cut in a, a area to put in an old Radley air conditioning unit, which was really nasty, really old, didn't work. Right. <laughs> and so that, that, then that was in a cage that sat out over the sidewalk. And so that was the only, and then in the wintertime that we would stuff that with um, comforters and quilts and everything you could think of in there to keep the cold air out. Yeah. And uh, but in the summertime, you would take that, take all that stuff out of there. And that was your only outside, um, you know, that was your only outside experience was that that, that cage on the outside of this air conditioning unit. And then the, then we built a wall separating that it was a wall separating the different areas. And so that was one of the first things we did was we um, put up a, a, a walls and uh, a ladder to a loft area for a sleeping quarter. And uh, my mother got us a little tiny refrigerator. I had a hot plate. That was the kitchen. And um, we put in uh, what Michael dug, uh, literally dug in, in the, the ground, um, the laying out pipes to put in a toilet. That's and uh, then we got a, a, a plastic uh, shower and, uh, put a toilet in there, and so so I mean it. So you know it was all done, um, all done from raw space, and we put in um, uh, electric uh, uh, wires 
across the ceiling to have electricity in the place in the living space and uh uh yeah it was we did it was all diy yeah and very very raw and very very hard the the summers were brutal they were so hot we were when i joined and we started rehearsing in there um, i would be wearing like a little swimsuit a little bikini swimsuit and the band would just be in there and their their uh shorts with no top because it was so hot you couldn't you know you were just drenched and then in the winter time you know you wear two sets of ll bean long <laughs> underwear um and you would never take those off the entire winter Wow. And, and and if I wanted to take a bath or, or shower, I'd have to walk to one of my friend's uh, apartments in a tenement building, and they had that steam radiator heat, so it got to be you know extremely hot in those apartments. So I'd go in there, and that would be where I would bathe, because because the thing about the bunker was you you had to decide what you wanted to do with the electric. You could either we got bought a, a, a plug-in electric radiator heater with the you know the oil that circulates in yeah, it, yeah. and um, we would have to put a pan of water on top of that to keep to keep the space from being <laughs> tolerable in terms of humidity. And so um, you would either have the heat on, or you could turn on the hot plate, or you could use the shower to to get the little hot water heater going you couldn't do all of those at once because you'd blow the fuses right so then you'd have we'd have to and of course the fuse box was underneath the ground of the building so you'd have to pull up the metal plate on the outside uh in the sidewalk and then you'd have to climb down underneath the street and go <laughs> underneath the building oh. and there would be uh planks of wood standing over standing water and of course rats and then you would go down there with the flashlight and then you could have to put in the to replace the fuses it was really horrible oh my god <laughs> that sounds like a hellscape i mean how many times do you guys blow fuses god. all the time gosh, gosh and yeah and and of course we had you know you had your friendly local neighborhood electrician we had the friendly local neighborhood locksmith and, uh, you know, these guys were, you know, your, your regular, you know, they came over and they did whatever you needed them to do, but they were just neighborhood guys, you know, I don't know if they were licensed or not. Right. They were just experts. At, at, and everybody had, you know, we were, this whole area then was artists with no money helping each other out. I mean, it was just like a community. Yeah. And, and um, it was all DIY. I mean, the whole situation was DIY. And, and it's a completely different area now. I mean, now now it's it's just like going to a shopping mall. I mean, it's just yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so cleaned up. And the one of the streets in the neighborhood there, someone told me recently, the rent was uh, ten thousand dollars a month. So God. I mean, it's it's just it's just um, you know it's it's completely different. And and I kind of I'm very happy that I got to experience. Um, the danger and, and the community because, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it, you, the valuable lessons that you, you get from that. It's, it's makes you extremely tough. It makes you extremely, uh, hardened and, and strong and you can take more, you know, because you've been through so much and, 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 and you know, it, it just, I learned, I learned so much. I had so many lessons and, um, 
it just it just kind of makes your heart as nails, you know. And so I think that these were really valuable experiences. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds like a super intense environment at that time. Um, Extremely intense, and and you gotta realize that, like, like some of the when I when I worked with Larry uh, Seven, Larry Lemay, at his home studio for Beautiful People Limited, and he worked on some of the stuff for Sacrificial Cake uh, and Anadoniac. Um, you know, we'd rehearse all. I mean, we would we would be working all night long, and and his whole studio was built by hand with, you know, what he had built bought from Radio Shack, and and he he had this incredible genius ability to make machines and to repair things that were broken. So we would be working all night. And then, you know, when it was time for me to go back, he was on 2nd Street. For me to go back to 6th Street, um, you had to go, you had to take Avenue A. You couldn't take B because you wouldn't make it alive. <laughs> you yeah. didn't get back. And yeah. So, so, yeah. So, so these, it's kind of hard to, you know, really make, explain to anybody that wasn't there just how, just how dangerous it was. Um, I wrote, uh, this is taken from journal entries, I wrote the lyrics for a song I did with, with Justin on, on, on the Yezu, oh. the Yezu uh, album, it, it, and this, the song is called Storm Coming On, and these lyrics are actual facts, I mean, they're truth, it, there's, there's nothing made up about that at all, and, and it was like, you know, one of the lines was, Stepping, stepping over needles and puddles of piss. This is every single day. You'd open up the big steel door of the bunker, and there would be hypodermic needles. There'd be some man urinating. Oh my <laughs> god! <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to New York. And then, and then going to the post office on 14th Street because, you know, we shipped a whole lot of packages and packages coming and going and and uh, for, for the band. And, and so I'd walk down to the post office and have to lug back all this stuff. And, and uh, you know, just nonstop of men parked along the side of the of the road would uh, whisper things to me and try to entice me, you know, into their car and just constant harassment from these sort of unsavory characters. Yeah, yeah. And you're in you're you're still in the big coat, right? You're you're still kind of Yeah, Michael yeah. and I both wore big coats. He would wear like the worst part of August or July. You'd see him walking along, you know, Avenue A. He'd be wearing a ankle length black wool coat. I mean it was it was just different era you know and 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 the thing is is that i think the idea was even if you wore a baggy cloth coat uh when it was hot i think the idea was then you didn't know if you were concealing a weapon or not you know right. <laughs> yeah. it was just kind of survival mode <laughs> but all my um training and classes that I had at Georgia State for uh, for boxing, um, for bondo boxing, you know, or kickboxing. I think that these these came in handy, you know, because I I learned how, my my teacher said that the the fingers that stay together slay together. Yes. And so I would <laughs> walk down the middle of the road because you were always doing these activities, whether it was going to performances or working in studios, you'd always find yourself at three, four in the morning walking down the middle of the road. Um, and, uh, you know, because you didn't want to walk on the sidewalk because someone could grab you. So you had to walk in the middle of the road with your, your fingers together. And to my credit, I was never mugged. 
Um, I think I looked like I would take your head off if you tried to to, to come near me. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so yeah, and then Michael taught me the prison walk where you're walking down the uh, middle of the road, and and it's kind of a, a lurch, kind of a walk where you're swinging a bottle. You always you stop into the bodega and buy something in a glass bottle, and then you would just be swinging that as you walk down the road because that's a weapon. So, you know, this skill set that you pick up. Um, <laughs> yes. I had a giant uh, crucifix on my keychain, and we had, a, of course, because they sold those, with, with had, had a knife inside there. And so, uh, you know, and then you learn, like, nervous tics and weird kinds of um, behavior so that you realize you, you develop these eyes all around your head like the back of your head you can tell when someone's checking you out like they're going to mug you so you start developing physical symptoms that are acting to make that person think that you're unhealthy or you're or you're crazy right. <laughs> so that they don't mug you um because in the problem see was when you got to the door the bunker door it had police lock. It had several deadbolts. So it took a while to get in that door because <laughs> there's so many locks to undo. Yeah. So you, that's when you're vulnerable, you know, when, when you'd be vulnerable standing there at these locks. You never want to look like you're fumbling, you know. You want to look like you're, you know, you're. And so you, so you might want to develop some kind of, you know, jittery kind of behavior events that people might think you're not the best person to try to mug. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, what was it exactly about Swans? You know, I, I know that I you, you got a hold of their first album uh, or, or listened or had heard it on radio. Uh, what was it about Swans that attracted you to their music? Well, the sound itself uh, was just majestic, you know, and uh, I, I found it to be extremely powerful and I found it to be unlike anything I'd ever heard in my entire life. It was completely original. And, um, I liked the mantra like repetition. Um, at the time I was lifting weights and so it really helped with my workouts. Um, I put it on and I did get the, I did get the album. I borrowed it quote unquote from W R E K. I, um, I, I had the station copy for quite some time. I befriended the, some of the people working at the station. And I had it for quite some time. And, of course, they'd already, they'd already put it on their cart because they had a cart system. So they had the album on the cart um, and where they could play it. And so the actual physical album in the back room there was I, I got the, the station copy. I couldn't find it anywhere. I couldn't find – it wasn't available anywhere. Um at wax and tracks nobody had it so i had to uh borrow that copy and and then i read on the back the whole thing started with i read on the back asking for the lyric sheet because there was an address you could write on the back and so some months went by and i finally got this this lyric sheet folded up with a stamp on it <laughs> and and there was a note on the back uh, from michael saying, you know, here's this lyric sheet, such that it is, you know. And, and, so, and so I wrote back with what I was doing at the time, you know, performing I was doing at the time and the tape projects I was making at the time. I sent him audio that I was doing at the time. And then we were doing a zine, a little zine we we're making at Kinko's. And, and so the zine um, 
uh, I, we decided, oh, let's go up, let's interview, you know, interview swans with Zane. So, so I went up there on a trip and, you know, and that's when I was invited to the rehearsal. So that's how the whole thing started. And, and I really, um, when I met Michael and talked with him, um, I was impressed with just how intelligent he was, how articulate he was, how educated he was. And it just, you know, it just blew my mind. That's when I realized that this is an art. This, and I told him that this is an art project. And he said, no, an art project. I think we're a rock band. And I was like, oh, no, you're an artist and this is an art project. (laughs) (laughs) Because, see, that's how I saw it. And that's how I continue to see it. Oh, yeah. And he, you know, and of course, that's his, that would be the typical thing he would say would be to downplay it, you know, so to say, oh, no, I think we're a rock band. That, that's his typical type of uh, approach to, to, you know, that's how he is. He's very, very, uh, would, would, would come back with something like making it less lofty, less, you know what I mean? He, he's not, he's not going to do that. He's going to, he's going to, he's going to put it baseline and say, oh, no, no, it's, it's just a rock band. Right, right. Well, well, given how, you know, once you joined the band and started performing with them, given how physically and emotionally draining a Swan show was and is, you were also moving and setting up the equipment each day and night. What kind of toll did, did that take on you? Well, when, um, well, you know, there was like a year or so of just, I mean, it was like being the, 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 the gopher, the, the, you know, the person that, hauled uh hauled the you know i would go to the, go get the press kit copied because uh, then it was all paper of course and um you know answered the fan mail and mailed off promos and i mean it was a lot of uh that kind of thing um sorting through his writing and organizing stuff and so it was a it was a, a long time but the 84 tour which i was on um was a real uh my God, that was trial by fire. Um, here I was. I was. Uh, I was vegan. I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I was an exercise nut. I lifted weights. I, I wore, you know, wrestling boots and leotards. I mean, and I had a buzz cut. So I uh, here I am, you know, traveling in a a van with everybody smoking, oh. and they were drunks beyond belief. I mean, I've never had seen, you know, it was unbelievable alcohol consumption. And so they would just get extremely drunk, smoking, you know, just hellraisers. And so I kind of felt like I held down the fort, like I, I held on to passports. I, you know, I carried drum kits up and down steps. I did things like that. And I think, um, the fact that I held it together and didn't, um, succumb to any of that i never would i i uh i think i was you know considered tough enough i i hope i don't know at least in some ways because i'm actually extremely sensitive introverted shy and quiet so it's kind of like it's a weird dichotomy you know so i think that i think that in terms of physical strength he thought i was um i i could handle it um but that's just physically i mean emotionally it was extremely difficult and I wanted to be part of it. He told me he wanted, a, a, you know, bass. And so I was getting ready to buy uh, and, and learn, teach myself how to play bass. Because, you know, their bass playing wasn't, I mean, it, w- it wasn't that complicated a bass playing. So I, so I thought I could do that. So then it changed when 
Harry um, quit the band, and then it became, um, you know, he was he was rolling with a with a foot pedal sounds from a cassette deck on stage, and so then it was like instead of using cassettes, um, you know, making sounds louder and softer with a foot pedal, controlling a cassette deck, let's you know create those sounds. So around this time, the sampling keyboard was had just come out. And Sonic Mirage. So I got the very first one, the very first in Sonic sampling Mirage keyboard. Oh, and man. so, so then we, and there was no monitor like computers have. It was all a, a digital readout of parameters, mathematical equations, mathematical numbers. Right. So it comes with this giant, um, you know, notebook with all kinds of parameter settings of how to change sounds. So then you record stuff into it and you alter it. So that was a huge learning curve. Oh, <laughs> so, to say the least. Because, so, you know, you don't see it. You're just It's just like numbers. So you can't see any waveforms or anything. Oh, gosh. You can't see files. So, so that was what I was supposed to play. So I did that. And, of course, the, the Calzone Road case was, I think, more expensive than the instrument. I don't know. I remember the keyboard was like, I think it was 1200 And then the Calzone Road case. So after this investment, um, I, I learned that it's extremely loud, controlling the volume of it. Was, all that was so complicated. So then um, that was the first tour. No singing, you know, just me playing that. So that tour was skinhead clubs, you know, uh, oh, just all male audience. Yeah. Um, no one believed I was in the group. I, several instances, was kicked and thrown downstairs and all this kind of stuff because they didn't believe that I was in the group. And, um, you know, very interesting. And, of course, you know, constantly yelled at, harassed. Um treated in a disrespectful way by the audience this is the days of hardcore punk you know this is like this is a different era so so um yeah so that was the that was the first you know touring experience with with that stuff and um and so yes yeah, sure uh you know that we didn't have roadies we didn't have the money for roadies so so yeah you'd have to you'd have to break everything down and put it and and um I, I very early on had the, had a sense of, you know, there was the persona performer, and then there was the person um, rolling up cables and 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 packing up the the gear, and so I would change clothes. You know, I put on a cap, I put on a jacket. I would be a different person when I was doing that than the person that you saw me performing yeah. playing the keyboard. So I always always did that. I still maintain that to this day, where there's there's the person putting on the show. And then there's the person who's, you know, behind the scenes, but there they are on stage rolling up the gear. So, but it was, it was hardcore, especially I've talked about this, this road case and this keyboard as early tours of Europe. Um, <clears throat> this thing was valuable and it was sensitive to heat and, and cold. And so you couldn't leave it in the van, even if you parked it where they, you know, the, the back door up against the wall so no one could break in. I had to bring this thing inside and so we'd play these, you know, these we'd stay in these these hotels around Europe. Like there was this one in Amsterdam, the the Quentin it was called. So that one, you know, the staircase was basically straight up. 
So I would literally have to get on my, you know, knees and lay prone and inch it up, you know, and, oh, and, 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 and move it. And then and, and no one would help you, of course. So you have to pull this thing up into your room for the night. So this was really a lot of the job was was moving this gear around. Yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. That's that sounds hellish. Um, yeah. But but I, I you know like you said about living um, in the bunker you know I'm sure this made you tough as nails and just I mean bulletproof in every way. Well, it was a real joy when we finally uh, started getting um, a roadie. And, and then it got to the point where, you know, we had a roadie and we had um, a driver and we had a merch person and a tour manager. And that changes everything, you know, because it, it's, it's, it's people taking some of the burden off of you when you're on the road. So, so the last, you know, the one, the, the training experience became joyous when that came on board, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. the early days, <laughs> the early days, yeah, the early days were interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit before swans and then get to your solo career, because I want to talk about that. There's just so much to, to digest, uh, so much amazing art, um, You've mentioned leaving a loving environment to join Swans um, from where you came. What did that environment consist of at that point in your life? Was it just a, a, your family and a great group of friends? Or what was that? Could you paint a picture of what you left to go into that situation with Swans? Well, first of all, uh, my best friend, and that was my mother. And so... I mean, she was everything to me. She was a mentor. She was just, we were just really, really close. And I think that was the most, um, the hardest part, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and, and really, uh, yeah, I can't even find the words to describe how wonderful she was. So that was the hardest. And, and um, that was something I did not want to 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 leave and and I had a, a whole uh, whole circle of artist friends at that time and, and so yeah so it was a, it was a, a community you know a community of supportive friends who were doing creative wonderful things and um, I had a, a person in town who uh, was somewhat important in the art community he wanted me to go into um, more performance art and uh, doing gallery installations and that kind of thing. So I think if I'd gone that direction, it would have been a very different life. I'm not sure it would have been a better one, but it was, but, but, but I mean, I was starting to go in that direction on my own and, and, you know, vocal performances, manipulating uh, the sound of the voice and this kind of thing. And, in performance, like a severe performance. So that whole world, um, you know, it, 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 it didn't, um, there was a competition there, you know, in terms of internal uh, dialogue. Right. And I decided that I had this, um, you know, opportunity that was a challenge and it was a severe challenge. And so um, I thought, well, you know, I have to rise to this challenge and so I'm going to do it. And so I think it was the fact that it was just such a, um, a strong challenge to go up there uh, where 
I knew no one. And um, just to start as a completely unknown entity, you know, with no friends. And, and of course, all everyone knew about me was, you know, where I was from. And so, of course, there was a tremendous amount of bias. Right. And I think that, um, uh, yeah, tremendous amount of bias where no one, um, well, zero respect because of the fact of where you're from. So you kind of uh, have to kind of prove yourself from the get-go uh, because no one respects you and everyone kind of laughs at you behind your back because of where you're from. So that was my experience. <laughs> and people would say things like, oh, well, you know, this place, this 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 horrible bar or whatever, like, oh, you, but you don't have anything like Blanche's down there. And, <laughs> and I'd say, oh, well, actually... And then I would mention a, a bar that was on Ponce de Leon where people were regularly murdered with guns, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so I'd mention, well, actually, we do have that. And um, so I think it was just kind of like this attitude of, oh, well, you know, you're just, you know, you, you're you're not from the main streets of, of uh, New York City. You're not from L.A., so you're not important at all. So I think it was kind of that is what I faced. Well, and I, I realized there was a huge group of what you call expats. I mean, there was a large group I began to, to realize that had moved to New York, those Southerners had moved to New York. And, and so, I mean, I think, that, I think that every Southerner at that time moving up there had to face a tremendous bias. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, and the, in, the interesting thing for me was um, – I had traveled extensively, you know, I'd been to Europe several times, I'd been to Manhattan, I don't know how many times, I'd uh, been to Lincoln Center and, and, and the Met, I'd sat in a box next to Jackie Kennedy looking at the opera, I oh, mean, I, I, mean I, 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 I had been to every Broadway show, I mean, I was a very traveled, educated person, and yet because I was born and raised, you know, in, in the South, they, they, uh, they, that, that art scene, that music art scene there, in the East Village seemed to think that um, dismiss me, I would say. And, and you know, and so there's a lot of bias and sexism would be what I'd faced. Yeah, yeah. Well, do, how do you feel growing up in the South has influenced your art? Well, what I've always said when people have asked me that question is that the uh, one that I grew up in embraced eccentricity. And I think that... Uh, Without a lot of the people that I remember as a child in Mississippi and, and New Orleans, I don't think I'd be the person I am today. Right. Um, I, I, I met a lot of really interesting people as a child, and, and um, that was my first experience seeing um, you know, performers on the street and um, the Mardi Gras. And, and I had a lot of um, you know, women uh, when I was a little kid that were – uh, just, just amazing, and 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 uh, you know, motivated me, and and they were they were, you know, they they were from that region. I mean, so I, I think that there's a, a you know, if you look at a city like, like Nola, I mean, it's it's the, the heart of of creativity and so much music and theater, that um, you know, this is. This is something that you know has a has a tremendous power on a child to influence them. So I think that um, I would say that it only encouraged me. 
Well, were you? What was the teenage Jarbo listening to? Are there any like live performances that you witnessed that kind of turned you on to to being a performer? Well, what I read early on was that your youth is. Um, well, I would say it's pretty much your whole life, but especially when you're in school, that it's intake. And then you get to put out, you outtake. So it's in, create, you know, learn, learn, get the information in there, and then put something out in the world. So I saw every damn thing there was. I mean, there wasn't there wasn't anything I didn't I, uh, uh, say no to. I had no bias. I saw it all. And um, any performance, I would go see all the performances in the park at Piedmont Park, and I would uh, go to all of the concerts and all of the shows. It seems to me that. Some of the early shows, they didn't care how old you were to get in to see the shows. Perhaps they didn't sell alcohol in those days. But I think that um, I just saw everything that there was. I mean, I, one of those shows that um, I saw that impressed me, uh, and of course I traveled too. I would go to see relatives and the relatives that lived up around Maryland and so in Virginia. And so I would, I would go see, you know, everybody. I saw, I saw James Taylor at a coffee house. I mean, I saw, <laughs> I would see everybody. Um, I saw, um, pretty sure it was Deep Purple and and uh, Spooky Tooth. Right. At, right. A, at a at a very small coliseum, Georgia Tech campus. So I mean, I I, I think I saw pretty much, you know, everything that that would come through, you know, I, I was, I was still like, God, I, I mean, was I even in high school yet? I mean, I was just a little kid and I saw, uh, I don't know, Savoy Brown, um, James gang. I saw Ellis Cooper. I mean, I've seen everybody really. I've seen every, every show. Um, as a kid, I was just constantly absorbing and going things. I would constantly be sneaking out of the house um, my parents didn't know I'd snuck out of the house and I'd go, <laughs> I'd go and see things and hang out with people. Um, I had developed a group of friends as I got older that would, uh, gather at this cabin <clears throat> and we would, uh, you know, they'd play guitar and we'd all sing and play guitar. And so that was a uh, formative too, you know, being around a, a bunch of musicians. Right. Right. Well, you're an amazing keyboardist, and I don't think it gets mentioned enough. Um, how do you feel your relationship with the instrument has is, is evolved over these years of playing live and, and just, you know, collecting all these experiences? Well, for me, it's... Um there's a sense of restraint. Like I don't like, uh, I don't really, res I shouldn't say I like, I don't like, I don't respond to, um, too much, uh, flourish. I like a sense of discipline and restraint. And that comes from all the years in swans where Michael repeatedly said too many notes, strip it down too yeah. many notes. And so this would be with my singing, with playing, and um, looking back, I understand, you know, that I continue to perhaps to be too many notes, but but I'm trying, you know, I, I continually try to to take away rather than add to, and 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 I I I think that um, my relationship with it changed when we got out of the um, 
you know, the whole time I was in Swans, we were in the big studio system. So, you know, big professional recording studios, expensive reel-to-reel tapes, um, massive budgets to do an album. And I think uh, I began to to think about the fact that you could, uh, as technology came on to the scene, you know, that you could buy this technology, you could buy computers, you could buy uh, different devices, and you could record at home, and you could have a home studio, and then you could bring an album in for, I don't know, under $150,000 for a small indie album. And so you figure our budgets were astronomical. And Michael still operates that way. He has the idea that he raises funds to create a new album. And so his albums, I think, are still extremely expensive comparatively to, um, you know, doing something completely at home or in a home studio. And I, I... my relationship with keyboard changed when I saw it as a tool to, um, you know, use a studio and a computer. Mm-hmm. And so you add organic sounds to, to uh, what you're accessing with the recording program. And I like the idea of architecture now, too, more than anything. I, th- I think my forte for me, right, would be mixing. And I think that I like to, uh, to to chop and create, manipulate files. Right. So you, this is a process that can take months to get what you want. And it's very minute. And it involves stretching files, looking at them, editing them, manipulating them, moving them around, changing the waveform. Yeah. And so, yeah. so this, is, this is the thing I love. Well, um... In 1991, just just to, to kick it off, you released the 13 Masks. I mean, what sticks out in your mind from that time, you know, this first kind of full length on your own, if you don't consider, you know, what, what, how difficult well, was that to transition to that? The first Skin album was technically my first solo album, and mm-hmm. and Michael, uh, you know, enjoyed it so much he wanted to do to do one. So then it became a project, and the whole idea was it was the singer and the song, the, the focus on the vocal performance, not a slab of sound, not a wall of sound like Swans is doing. So I think that um, uh, I would consider that the the first, and and I began uh, to, uh, I guess, to meet different uh, musicians, and so uh, I was constantly stimulated creatively because I was working in Swans, and so I was. So when when you're working in an environment like that, you're you have so many creative ideas is just kind of like spilling out of you. I mean, you're 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 just you're you're, you're sleeping and, 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 and breathing sound. And so you, you need an outlet to, you know, to, to get it, to to express it. And I think that this was because my, my, uh, ideas were, um, so stimulated and so activated that this led to a series of solo albums the entire time I was in Swans. Yeah. And they would all go out drinking after rehearsal and, I would stay behind alone, and I would work on on the keyboard. I had a little Casio that I used to to compose with, and so I'd sit there uh, and and I would just 
just be working and, and writing music by myself. So that's, that's how all that started was just, you know, I'd stay, stay behind. I never was part of that. I wasn't, you know, I mean, I was the loner. And so I stayed behind and I worked on, on songs and, 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 uh, by myself. So, so this is what led to the, to then, you know, putting it on an album and then, you know, that led one thing led to another where that just all these creative ideas. And the thing, the thing for me was they were always, um, people criticized saying, Oh, well, you know, things should be more cohesive and should, you know, basically all sound like the same kind of song, the same kind of music. And, I could never do that. I still can't do that. Like, I think it's fine to have um, radically diverse, eclectic uh, sounds on an album. And you don't have to, the whole thing does not have to be pop. The whole thing does not have to be dance. The whole thing does not, you know, you can just do one. And so that's, I think, what is, is if there's a style, that's my style. It's the eclecticism. Uh, and that's, that's, to me, what makes you so compelling of an artist. I mean... Everything, just about all your records, it's just a journey. You know, you take a like sacrificial cake. There's a lifetime in that record. I mean, it's a perfect example to me of like the journey, the changing on a dime that your records do. Um, uh, speaking of that record, there's a rumored vinyl release planned for sacrificial cake. That's going on right now. Uh, this company wrote me, and and they uh, they had written my friends. Um, Monica Richards and William Faith. They they had a, a band called Faith and the Muse, and they uh, they were working with this company. And so when I saw that they and Lisa Hammer, whom I know because I when she was working with Adult Swim, she was the one that uh, was responsible for giving me the job of doing the the Southern Maid on that episode of the Venture Brothers. And so so. Um, when I saw that Lisa Hammer and, and that uh, Faith and the Muse had, had worked at this company, I thought, well, okay, that you know, gives them cred for me. So this company, they're in Greece. This company is, is doing a vinyl of, of Sacrificial Cake. I'm working with the mastering engineer right now to try to get the sound that I want for it. Because, of course, and also I'm trying to figure out what happened to the, the master for the, the vinyl when it was put out with Drainland. Right, right. Uh, and if that exists somewhere, I was just writing Michael when, when you called asking him if he <laughs> had some <laughs> idea of the whereabouts of um, that, because that would be interesting to to uh, see. Because I don't even remember what form that master was on. You know, was right. it? So, so, but I, I think that um, you know he's mastering from a CD right now. So we'll see how that goes. Um, but I. Yeah, that's supposed to supposed to happen. It's happening right now, and that's supposed to be out on lavender vinyl. Okay, <laughs> lavender. And yeah, and it's it's called the circle music. You know, the circle meaning record because they only do records. Right. Well, you know, when you're doing stuff, when you're going back on mastering and and going back revisiting some of your work, given the diaristic nature of your work and the field recordings you you have accumulated and 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 put into your music um how does this affect you when you revisit some of these um albums rather than affect me in that way i think what what i notice is um a curious 
wondering what state of mind I was in when I <laughs> when I <laughs> conceived something or performed something. And um, I think that there was a certain amount of um, deep emotional uh, vitriol that went into a lot of this work. Um, and it just, to me, looks like someone growing and learning and, you know, someone um, just really kind of stretching and, and exploring who they are and what they are doing with their voice and, and with their songwriting. And that's, it's Sacrificial Keg is a really good example because it goes from a very sensual song um, about, you know, from the point of view of a, of a mistress, you know, who's who's having an affair and then, and then, and there's a, a scene of violence in it, you know, and, and, you know, she, she runs for the knife. And so, I mean, there's a, there's kind of, and then she's kind of in this daze of, of, you know, how she wound up in this situation, you know? And, and so it goes from that to then something like yum yab, which is extremely violent and, and, and it's a metaphor, you know, it's not literally slasher, wrist it's not literally do this to your to yourself it's 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 a metaphor for the whole you know like natural born killers i mean it's, it was it was inspired by this this idea of 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 metaphor of 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 of, of, of anger and intensity and violence and it, it it's, was kind of exploring that emotion yeah so i mean i think i think that you know when i look back at it i look at wow like i was in a really really <laughs> intense place to embody that and and so certainly with anadoniac it's the same way I oh mean, absolutely and, and and you know i remember you used to have this argument with with this particular artist who would say well you don't um you know, you don't use something as catharsis because that's self-indulgent and you don't write diaristically because that's self-indulgent. And so I've decided through the years I disagree with that because these are universal human experiences. And the more, the more personal, the more real you are, the more people relate to you. Mm -hmm. And so I no longer think that there's anything to be ashamed of if to say, oh, well, you were, you know, writing from the heart therefore you you can't call yourself an artist well i disagree so i think that um you know when i look back at these records i see that they were sincere that they were there was nothing um tongue-in-cheek it was absolutely you know intended you know so i i, I i'm 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 glad that i stuck to my you know my agenda with that yeah yeah well uh changing gears a little bit you worked with uh attila from mayhem on a song, The Soul Continues, off of Mahakali. Mm -hmm. How did this collaboration come about? It's just, That just fascinates me. Well, we performed that uh, live twice. Yeah. And it was wonderful. The first time we performed it was at the Inferno Fest in Oslo, Norway. Oh, wow. And um, he is someone I really love. He's so talented. Uh, Void of Voices, his solo performance, is one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my entire mm -hmm. life. He, you know, he's trained. I mean, he does opera uh, lessons and opera um, uh, scales and kind of things to keep his voice intact. He's a really serious vocalist. He can do the metal, but he can do anything. I mean, he's, he's truly a magnificent performer. Um, but it came about, um, gosh, let's see, I was recording, I was in New York, I was recording Mahakali, um, and I was working with somebody who 
had a connection um, to uh, Season of Mist Records in Europe. And so um, we were discussing different performers that I wanted an eclecticism of some of these songs, and I wanted a male singer. And so that's when uh, his name came up. And so I talked with him, and um, he, you know, agreed to do it. And he, he loved it. I mean, he said he loved it. He loved working with a female uh, voice on the same song. And and then we became friends. You know, we we saw each other in, in Europe. And so I considered him a good friend. And he's he's a really sweet guy. And and um, on the same um, the same subject, uh, Philip Anselmo was a real joy to to get to know and he agreed to to sing on the Mahakali and I, I threw down the gauntlet with him. I was like, I want you to sing, you know, completely raw, like your southern Louisiana voice and I don't want effects on it and I want it, you know, just completely natural. And he did that. And he it's did. kind of astonishing. That's one of my favorite songs as well. What he did is great in my opinion. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, you, you have a lot of toes and you have a lot of connections to the world of metal. What attracts you to like extreme metal? I, you know, I don't, I don't even look at it that way. Like the men album, you know, I sang with Alan Sparhawk. I yeah. mean, I don't I don't really I, 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 I don't I don't uh, care for one genre over the next. I don't I don't even look at it that way. Right. I just look at I just I look at a particular performer, or a particular song, you know, or a particular delivery. Um, and I wouldn't say that I have a connection to to rock or to metal i i i i uh i think i just see these as people that i've gotten to know and and i've i really um found them to be very uh well just great you know yeah, at yeah. least at least with at least in my inner i mean another uh group that i really love would be Stephen o'malley's uh performance group son and oh, yeah. and i've seen them live several times and they're also uh you know, very uh, majestic, you know, and just profound and beautiful. So, so these are all unique, unique, um, you know, performances and unique, unique uh, uh, approaches to sound, you know. And so I think I, I wouldn't say I like a particular genre. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, do you have any, here's one more question with that. Do you, you worked with In Solitude on Horses in the Ground from their album Sister. Do you remember, do you have any recollections of working with them? I love those boys. Uh, they, um, of course, they aren't together anymore. But, yes. But Heinke, uh, Heinke is, is a really dear, a dear friend. And um, he's performed me on stage when, when I went over to, to, to Sweden and um, he's he's someone I really love and of course he was in Ghost briefly and yeah. so I, I went down there to see them perform at the Tabernacle and I had had never heard of the group before and had no expectations at all <laughs> and so when I went in there I thought to myself well I hope there's at least a couple hundred people here <laughs> and, yeah. and then I got down there and there's a line of people trying to get oh, in yeah. and 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 so that was an interesting experience, a very terrifying audience. I felt like I was in a cult. <laughs> uh, won't be seeing that performance. Won't be seeing them again. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so it was interesting. But he's not in, He's not working with them anymore. No, no, yeah. But, but yeah, so, so 
that came about again there's this um the man that uh had connections to uh some of these labels he um he was their manager at one point and so that's how that happened was he he uh, asked me to and and then they were writing me and we got to got to be friends and they when they came through got to to hang out with them and so yeah so i love heinke he's a brilliant brilliant musician absolutely um well let's get back to your solo your your current work uh atulpa is your latest full-length release um what does that title mean to you well, um, I've been studying Tibetan Buddhism now for most of my entire life. And so this is, uh, uh, in my use of it is me, it's, it means manifestation. Mm-hmm. So the implication is that these songs are manifestations. They are life forms. Yeah, yeah. And, and this record, you talked earlier when we were, when we were talking about Sacrificial Cake, the cinematic quality. This album especially has a cinematic quality. Like, I love how the vocals come back at the end of Fate Cinema. Um, how did how did this album come manifest itself? I mean, what what was uh... it was a follow up to Illusory. Yes, and I, I have to say, Illusory is my favorite album that I've ever done. Really? And I worked on it so hard. I I did architecture on it. I did extreme vocals on it. And um, uh, really kind of speaking in tongues. And I carried that idea over to uh, Etalpa, to, to the idea that the voice is, is channeling. And um, so it's not uh, words, per se, that are, that are recognizable. They're um, emanations. Mm-hmm. So this is an idea that I really, really like. And that's a, that's that's something that I'm probably going to continue to do, as well as like I did on Illusory, revisiting an older song. So revisiting Man of Hate yeah. um, seemed really appropriate at the time that I reworked it for Illusory. <laughs> and of course, it's still appropriate. It's even more appropriate now. Of course, at the time I reworked it thinking about Trump. And then when I reworked it again, um, I, if I, well, I reworked it again for the tour and then it had somebody else in mind. But now it's pretty obvious who it would be about now. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, um, I think that, uh, I, I, I may hold off on, on doing that on, on the tour. If our, if our tour actually happens, but the, the tour, um, I wanted to say the tour is going to, has changed that my, my concept of it has changed, um, which is going to be really good because it's going to force me to have another skill set. And so now instead of the, uh, the keyboard sounds. I'm sitting at the keyboard again. I'm going full less more on this thing. I'm, <laughs> I'm, yeah. So I'm going to be MacBook Pro. Nice. And I'll probably use Mainstage and, uh, uh, instead of, uh, yeah, I'm probably going to be using Mainstage, but, but it's going to be uh, manipulating sounds and playing sounds with the controller keyboard. And that's going to be a, a totally new world and, and, and for the, for the show. Right. Right. Well, you're such a prolific artist. I mean, if this exists, what does an average day in your life look like to maintain this quality of work? Someone else asked me that on the on the, uh, the publicity um, 
jaunt that I just did. What's <laughs> 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 your daily day? Uh, yes, uh, exercise. That's the first thing I do. Um, I get up. I have. Um, I make espresso with. I only use oat milk, which I foam up. Nice. And uh, and and um, and then I I down that, and then I get on the the rogue Echo bike. And that became my really good friend during the pandemic, <laughs> because during the pandemic, the park was closed. Yeah, yeah. So you couldn't even go running. So now that's like my love. So I have the Rogue Echo bike, and then I also have an incline treadmill. So it's like you're constantly climbing on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the first thing I do is I do 10 miles on the bike. Wow. And I do that every single day, seven days a week. What? And I, I keep ch I keep challenging myself, um, and I use um, um, I I subscribe to Apple Fitness, and so I have fitness instructors that I use yeah. for the bike or or, or 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 for the treadmill or any other exercise, you know. So I constantly meet the 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 goals and the challenges that I've set for myself. So I think it's really important to do that first first thing is to just put yourself to extreme exercise right. and then you get your blood going and you're just, you're done. You feel full of energy. Um, so that's the first thing I do. And I make sure I do that every single day. Well, that's got it. That's yeah. Fitness is so important. I can see how it's helped you through, through all these, through all these years. But another thing is how do you, how do you maintain your voice? Do you have any contemporaries you share, you share like vocal cord maintenance tips with or, how do you, how do you maintain such a such an amazing instrument? Well, I had years of lessons, you know. Mm -hmm. My father pushed me with all that, and I had years of of lessons. But I think, as I've talked about before, I had to throw away a lot of the things I learned because a lot of the things I learned in terms of how to perform were not creative enough. They were old school and like one of the things was you have no breath and your voice well the breath is a very powerful part of singing so in, in terms of you, you you can accentuate the breath um but 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 the 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 truth of the situation with me is is that it's completely um adrenaline fueled and it's all like life force it's all just energy from being alive right and there isn't any um, you know, there isn't any formal maintenance or lessons or any of that. Like if um, all the years I went on tour, like I, you know, in Swans and even on my, on my many, many tours I've done, I do Jack. I show up at the venue, boom, I'm singing. I don't do any warm ups. I don't do anything. And I think that, um, you know, it's all just from the gut, I would say. It's just like this, it's like this mental image and that's what drives everything. Right. Just being involved in the artwork, contemporaries, musicians, people that you got to pick their brains or, or spend time with that, uh, that, that, that made them pressure on your artistic life. In terms of, um, you know, vocalizing, I mean, there's just too many. I mean, there are people mm -hmm. that I, I haven't met. I mean, there are people that I just listened to, like Maria Callas and you know, Janis Joplin yeah. and, and Marianne Faithful and I mean, you know, people that, that their voices they they you know, they make them their own uh 
style. They, they approach things from their own uh, maverick uh, way, you know, and, and so I think, you know, the whole maverick, uh, you know, nonconformist, um, you know, view, like, well, you, you look for another way, you know, you, you look, look for a, a different way, a different, a different mode. Um, but, you know, certainly Michael was a huge mentor to me and, and uh, taught me so much. So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I've, I've met a lot, so many people that um, it's kind of hard for really kind of, um, you know, answer the question because I've, I've met so many artists. Yeah, yeah. Well, what's next? I mean, what do you see? What, what are some, what are you working on now? What are the upcoming releases and tours? And selfishly, are you going to be uh, involved in any future swans? Uh, selfishly to me, meaning, are you going to be influencing well, future swans? Yeah, I mean, the time when they were touring and they played um, Terminal West and Michael just, hey, you want to come down? And do-? So that was a surprise, you know, and I went down there and did a blow in your hands. But, I mean, I don't know about that. I think that he's, the next thing that we're doing together, which is actually a big deal, is, again, this is assuming the world doesn't blow up. <laughs> Right. We're um, supposed to be performing at the same festival. Uh, I think it's December. Anyway, it's in Berlin. And so he, uh, with Kristall, just the two of them, and uh, I'll be performing at the same event. So that's the next thing I know of in terms of anything related to him. Uh, um, and, um, you know, I'm sure that's going to be uh, pretty intense for the, for the audience. I think that uh, um, in terms of me, I mean, just pick your project. Um, let's see, right now I'm I'm working on three songs for a short film. I am finishing up uh, the score for a independent film that I was asked to do a year over a year ago, January last year, and um, that was January of last year. And then I immediately asked Chris Forrest to work on it. Uh, because you know we work really good as a team, and we did the path together. Yeah, which yeah. won. I mean that that won. You know, best music for a game in, in the Global Game Awards in Bilbao, <laughs> Spain. <laughs> so 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 we so I asked her to work on it with me, and she's brilliant. You know, she's a graduate of Mills College. She's an engineer. She's an incredible musician. She's astonishing in every way. So. So we're working on that. She's uh, actually putting it together to the to the visual. So what we what we did is we started working on that, came up with all these ideas. I tapped Thor Harris to to play some instruments yeah. uh, for it, and she's uh, tapped some of her friends, um, a cellist, and different people. Jackie, who was in Amber, and so um, so then the the, the they just the, the whole team behind this film disappeared and I guess they were getting their funding together. So then they bobbed up again. So that's finalizing. So that's two films, uh, short films. And then I'm doing a, um, a, a rock group. Uh, I'm doing a, a cover version. They asked me to do an album. So then uh, let's see what else. Oh yeah. And I've started another solo album. I've got six songs that I've uh, got started there and, and then um, in addition to that, uh, I'll be going into rehearsals and getting ready to go on the road with touring with 
Joseph Van Weissen, who I'm a huge fan of his work. So this is a thrill, uh, a dream to tour with him. So I'm, I am fingers crossed that that will actually happen. And, um, you know, so that would be November into December, all throughout Europe, starting oh, wow. with two, starting with two shows and two shows in London and four other shows throughout England and then moving on to Belgium and, and, uh, and, and then, uh, Sacrificial Cake, uh, coming out on the circle. and Oh, yeah, and then I did something with Black Leather Jesus, and that is in pre-order vinyl. I, what I did was I – that's a split. They're on one side, I'm on the other. And so I, I edited um, walls. The walls are bleeding. I edited oh, wow. that, and I, I, I had the individual files, and I created something completely different. So I'm on one side, and they're on the other. And – um, I was happy because when I asked him about the cover art, um, I suggested I would do one of my energy field paintings for it. And so that's on the cover. So I'm really excited to have that oh, that's a... on a little on a record. And is that a yeah, vinyl they're... is that a vinyl only release? Yeah, 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 it's a vinyl. No, well they I think they have it on their band camp, but but um, Summer Interlude Records, they're called. Oh, but they're wow. a, a, a Black Leather Jesus is a, a collective of electronic musicians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and and they also beat sheet, sheet metal, and they you know, like they're like a like a modern industrial, um, you know, industrial music yeah, type yeah. band. So I'm really ha- so I thought, what can I do that would fit with that? And I thought I'll go back to. You know that era. You know something I recorded in '83. You know, and I'll manipulate that. So I was really excited to um, to do that. So it's not like it's not necessarily new, but it's it's a new, radically new mix. Yeah, yeah. That's that a- thing in its edited version, the walls. That thing down when it was edited to like five minutes from the two hours I think it originally was. That thing was. <laughs> That thing was put on a card and it was played during lunchtime <laughs> on, on so WREK. Yes. WREK. And so people would be on their lunch break, businesses, and they would call the station all upset, like, oh my God, a woman is being murdered. Oh my God. It's, it's one of the most intense things I've ever heard. <laughs> it's so yeah. funny. Uh, I that's so great. Well, that was recorded at Rec. That was recorded in, in the control room there on their Scully reel to reel. Oh man! Yeah, I never where, knew that was recorded that. there. Yeah, wow. yeah. Uh, that's insane. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was, uh, you know, really good friends with um, the people that were doing the the experimental shows. You know, conceptions, and then it was changed to notes from the underground and so so yeah that was the whole scene you know arthur davis and jay wiggins and and oh you know the young schizophrenics and (laughs) this whole electronic scene that was happening um you know experimental scene that was happening in those days right right well you sound so busy and it's so good to, to 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 know that you're out there creating all this wonderful art and gonna be able to tour fingers crossed this year uh, Jarbo, I just yeah. want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Is there anything that you'd like to impart to our listeners? Any parting shots or anything? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, thank you for uh, having me on. And um, yeah, just thanks for, for, uh, for the opportunity to talk to you. Yeah, yeah. Well, 
please come back on sometime when you when you when you put out a new record you know you're on this run that i think is just uh, supernatural um especially all the uh, the stuff you've released in these last years it's just amazing so thank you so much for doing this I truly want to thank Jarbo for her kindness and her time uh, coming on our podcast. Uh, it, was, it was a real delight to talk to her. And I, I do, as I mentioned at the top of the show, recommend you uh, check out her vast catalog and Illusory, um, which she mentioned to me is her favorite thing she ever did. Um, I would really recommend you check that record and, and just go backwards. So... Uh, Thanks for listening tonight. Um, I'd like to remind you that we will be announcing our live tapings here coming up soon. We'd love to see you out at that. And uh, it's going to be a fun night. Uh, think uh, one of those 70 variety, 70s variety shows on acid, except I won't be on acid. I assure you. Um, we'll stay switched on, and we'll talk to you soon.